When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. Today, Ed Ward is back for a discussion of Bob Wills and Western Swing. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Ed and I pick up the history of country music where we left off after the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and carry on into the 1930s with the emergence of a distinctive genre in Texas, Western Swing. And we'll be talking about the man, Bob Wills, who led it to the top of the pop charts, packed dance halls across the country, television, and movies. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox. My co-host, Ed Ward, is back to discuss Western Swing, possibly the grandfather of rock and roll on the Anglo-American side. If Louis Jordan is the grandfather of rock and roll on the rhythm and blues side, I think you can make a strong case that Bob Wills and his colleagues in Western Swing were the grandfather of rock and roll on the other side. Ed? Is that crazy talk? Yeah, I, I I would tend to agree with that in that Bob grew up in, in Turkey, Texas, which is not exactly a metropolis out in West Texas. And um, his, uh, his family were farmers, and they worked right alongside black farmers. And, and the, the parallel that's always occurred to me has been um, Carl Perkins, who grew up in similarly impoverished rural agricultural surroundings in Arkansas. Both of them, they, they didn't think of black people as, you know, the other, you know, some alien race. They were their neighbors. And, you know, you said, hey, Bill Johnson went to the hospital. And, and yeah, that's when you'd maybe say, was it the black Bill Johnson or, or the white one? You know, because common name. But um, they they didn't really see any difference in, in the music or you know, the, the the people who owned radios tuned into the Grand Ole Opry, whether they were white or black, because they wanted entertainment. Yeah, and so Bob Wills comes from this family of Southern fiddlers who are fully steeped in the Scots-Irish-American fiddle tradition. His father, right. uh, you know, was a legendary fiddle contest winner uh, in the Texas area of a bitter rival of Eck Robertson, who who or Eck Roberts, who wrote the who recorded the first country western track in 1922, or, or country track, hillbilly track would probably be the be- most right. accurate description. But uh, you know, Wills adds the blues and gospel that he hears growing up in these cotton camps, picking cotton side by side with African Americans, adds a little bit of Spanish influence from the time he lived in New Mexico. And and voila, we've got Western Swing. Right. It all seemed natural to him. It was just, you know, what can you play on the fiddle that people will listen to and, you know, dance to and pay you for? Exactly. And but before we dive too much into Bob, I want to I want to pull back a little because we talked about Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family and the 1927, you know, big bang of country music in Bristol, Virginia. And, and that carries into the early 30s. But I want to sort of set the scene with what's happening in country music between Rogers and the Carter family and the rise of Bob Wills in the mid to late thirties. And so I think the most important thing is this distinction between 
country music and western music. What's that all about mm-hmm. at the time? Well, uh, western music was perceived sort of romantically with uh, Hollywood giving it a huge boost as as a kind of a kind of music that the cowboys would sing out on the range in between, you know, killing Indians um, and gather around the campfire. And, you know, Roy Rogers was probably one of the first and um, uh, Gene Autry, who began his career as a musician, uh, really derivative of, of Jimmy Rogers. Um, the, these guys were singing cowboys in the movies. It was sound being a novelty when they started. It really caught on with the uh, with the audience. Uh, of course, the um, the songs were all written largely by Jewish songwriters in Hollywood, but um, the the movie audiences didn't know that. And as I say, the musical form became quite um, quite attractive in urban and and uh, exurban uh, situations, regardless. Yeah, and so Bob Wills. Coming up in in West Texas, uh, he he makes his first move into, I guess, the popular music arena when he moves to Fort Worth, Texas, in the late twenties, and and meets a guy named Milton Brown and his brother Durwood. Milton Brown was a singer. Bob Wills was a fiddle player. Durwood Brown was a guitarist. They start building a band. Uh, I get this opportunity with the radio show with something called Light Crust Dough. Right. It was a flower. Uh, <laughs> Thank heavens for white flour. That it made many a career, from Sonny Boy Williamson on up. Um, they they yeah yeah they they got a um, a contract to do a show for uh, a radio show, with their sponsor being uh, Light Crust Flour, and so they became the Light Crust Doughboys, and they were an immediate hit because you know live music on the radio and a semi-rural situation like Fort Worth, hooray. It was what the, uh, what the early risers wanted to hear. Yeah, and it, and it had pretty big reach over uh, the whole area, reached Dallas, central Texas, up into Oklahoma, uh, probably west into New Mexico as well. And that musical ferment is really strong. Milton Brown is somebody probably most listeners have never heard of, but this is a guy who is remembered, some people make a legit case because he's the father of Western Swing, where Bob Wills is the king of Western Swing. And a lot of this is because Milton Brown dies in a car accident in 1936. Right. After he, his career didn't last very long. They, they split from uh, W. Lee Papio Daniel, who was the manager who had arranged this whole contract with Light Crust. They'd um, formed the, uh, the Brownies, and uh, got a residency in uh, Crystal Springs, was it? A resort just north of Fort Worth. Yeah. Where there was, you know, lots of shenanigans going on. And um, that was not the kind of thing that uh, Pappy O'Daniel wanted from his boys. Of course, Pappy hired a whole another group of Light Crest Doughboys. They were still going, oh, I don't know, well into the 80s or 90s. Yeah, Papilio Daniel's a real character because this is a, a manager at, at the Light Crust Flower Factory who imposes himself, I, I believe, uh, from reading um, Charles Townsend's San Antonio Rose, which to me is the biography of Bob Wills, that oh, yeah. O'Daniel uh, actually came in after the deal had already been cut and for some reason becomes fascinated with this radio show, in, imposes himself as the interlocutor of the radio show starts making musical suggestions and trying to uh, control where the guys can play. Milton Brown and his brother won't put up with it, quit very early, form their own band. The musical Brownies hit the ground running. Bob Will stays for a couple more years and right. actually, I believe, gets fired by O'Daniel. And it's, it's only when uh, his singer, Tommy Duncan, that he found to replace Milton Brown, uh, said, where are we going, Bob? After Bob got fired, that Bob went out on his own. Uh, and found a flower company. Yeah, found another flower company. I think they go to Waco, and then and, and Pappy Leo Daniel sues them, and they end up going to Tulsa, and he tries to sue them, but he finally they finally found a radio station that would stand up to Pappy Leo Daniel and a flower company and break free of that. But I want to talk about Milton Brown a little bit more. I mean, 
one of oh, sure. the musical Brownie's big innovations is the amplified steel guitar. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, and I, I that came about as a result of the Hawaiian fad, which was still going strong. Yeah, and that's you know the U.S. Uh, colonized Hawaii in 1898, and Hawaiian musicians flood America. We've talked about this already uh, in the context of Jimmy right, Rogers. Pan Pacific exhibition. Yeah, and it's probably even where uh, blues guitarists got the idea for slide guitar. It is, yes. Uh, it's pretty well documented. Tent shows. Yeah, and so, you know, this Hawaiian influence, it's so funny to me because steel guitar is seen as, along with banjo, which is actually an African instrument, steel guitar is seen as like one of the most definitive white redneck country music instruments. And yet it's got right. this international uh provenance and so when milton brown adds uh electrified uh steel guitar that's a big step forward for the music a, a big innovation and and a real step on the road to rock and roll yeah and uh, the thing that you did with the steel guitar was not only back up harmonies but you did takeoff solos you know where where the steel guitar would play a solo um in the in between the verses of a song. That is a, an innovation that rock and roll certainly capitalized. I mean, there's, it's a s silly thing to think about, but you can draw a line between Milton Brown and Eric Clapton. In yes, that regard. absolutely. And, and yet Milton and Bob Wills, when he did the same thing, not just with steel guitar, but bringing in fiddlers who could take mm -hmm. breaks, they were thinking of this as jazz breaks. I mean, that's what jazz was, right. improvisation. And so... Uh, I think one of the most fascinating things about, you know, I grew up on Bob Will's music through my family, but one of the most fascinating things about researching and learning about him is uh, the way that Will saw himself and Milton Brown presumably as well, because they were very good friends all the way up to Brown's death, even after Brown left. They saw themselves as essentially pop or jazz or swing performers who just happened to have fiddles in the band. Yeah, they, they thought they'd hit on something that nobody had hit on before that would become a national phenomenon because, hey, don't people love cowboy movies? Exactly. And and I think uh, they were right in that up to a point. And we'll get that a little bit. I want to talk about a couple other developments that are happening with what's going on with country music, where it's centered in Nashville with the Grand Old Opry, which is on a, a massive radio channel that, that is a clear channel that blasts the whole country. And people like Uncle Dave Macon, who's essentially running a minstrel show, you know, 70 years behind right. the times, uh, sort of preserved in amber in his act. And other people like uh, Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers with Riley Puckett, who are doing a mix of old-time fiddle music, something like Fiddle and John Carson had done, but then adding Riley Puckett, who's a really melodic singer and a pretty slick guitarist, and you know things like Ragged but Right that Puckett recorded in 1934, is is following up on the innovations of Rogers, Jimmy Rogers, and the Carter family, who brought a pop song context to country mm -hmm. music. But uh, but very much it's a string band. There's definitely no rural. drums. Oh, it was rural pop. They saw that the rural, rural market had enough money to make careers. Um, the, the Opry had this policy of touring its acts and then everybody getting back together again for the show. And uh, it, was, it was rural pop music. But it did have its limits. And he, as you mentioned, drums was one of them. And definitely... Uh... Wills and Brown were way ahead of them on amplified steel guitars, amplified electric guitars, which they add later. And uh, this jazz influence and horns that Brown mm -hmm. and Mills both had are way, way off the map for these country performers. Well, yeah, this, this is not the beginning of the Nashville, Texas, West Coast divide, but it, it certainly is a, a landmark in its development. Yeah. Um, country and music has, has always tried to be monolithically centered in Nashville, and thank God it's never managed to accomplish that. <laughs> Today it might be closer than ever, and, and the sounds coming out of Nashville 
will tell you why uh, that might not be the best idea. But Wills, <laughs> you know, and Brown for several years are uh, rocking and rolling in Texas and in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look on Wikipedia, the country music in 1934 or 1935, you'll see a very much a passing of the torch that in – 33, 32, 33, 34, 35, Milton Brown has one of the top songs of the year every year. And right with the time of his death, Bob Wills starts getting there. And after Brown dies in a car wreck, Wills and the Texas Playboys just pick up the torch and run with it. Yeah, they they inherit. I mean, Wills inherited the best instrumentalist he could find. I, I, I believe... Um, that uh, Jesse Ashlock, who is e- equally, um, he's, he's equal with Stefan Grappelli as one of the great fiddlers of the 20th century. Um, I, I believe he, he came from uh, the Light Crestovians. Yeah, and, I think um, Wills found him originally, then he left with Milton Brown, and then he came back to Wills. Mm-hmm. And another one was Al Strickland, who was uh, strictly a parlor piano player who um, was tied to some radio station where they were performing. And Wills thought, hmm, we need a piano. That's another thing you never saw in country music. Country music was all about strings, fiddles, guitars, banjos. That was it. That was what Nashville was seeking to uh, preserve at that point. Although they they did pick up uh, Ernest Tubb, who's sort of an anomaly uh, in all of this, because he played electric guitar, as did his band, and uh, he was from Texas, but he was firmly natural centered, and he, he worshipped at the idol of Jimmy Rogers, and in fact was given one of Jimmy's guitars by his widow. And there, but not, not exactly a swinger. No, but does become the father of honky tonk, and there's right. a story, you know, allegedly uh, Ernest Tubb blew out his voice. And I can't remember if it was Ill, trying to sing when he was sick or drinking too much, but he, he ruined his voice and couldn't do Jimmy Rogers' style singing anymore and developed the legendary sort of E.T. croak uh, that right. <laughs> made songs you know, like Waltz Across Texas or Walking the Floor Over You, you know, so memorable. Um, but and, and talking about Will's instrumentalist, I mean, you've got to mention Leon McAuliffe, the steel guitarist. Right. Well, all of these people were, were innovators who were looking to, as they say, push the envelope on their instruments. That, that was the thing that they enjoyed, uh, was the freedom to do that in Wills' band. Bob actually was not all that great an instrumentalist. He was not all that great a songwriter, but he knew how to develop. He was like uh, um, Duke Ellington in that he heard individual voices in his instrumentalists and deployed them with the maximum effect. Yes, and like Duke Ellington, he's this incredibly charismatic figure. And over and over again, you know, when you read accounts of his band, they'll talk about if Bob wasn't there, it was flat and directionless. And if Bob was on the bandstand, even if all he's doing is smoking his cigar, tapping his bow uh, to keep time and going, aha, every once in a while, the crowd responded in a totally different way. I mean, it's just an immensely mm-hmm. charismatic figure and, and the mastermind of the music. So, yeah, I think it's really important that you're zeroing in on Bob's role because there's so, you know, that band leader role is very much a thing of the, in the swing era. But later in rock and roll, it's kind of hard for people to understand. No, wait, this guy wasn't the singer. He was, He didn't write the majority of their songs, he didn't play any of the solos. Why is it called Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys? Right. Well, you have to go see him to understand that. <laughs> Regrettably, that's not possible. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't want to go see any of their cowboy movies either. <laughs> yeah. And so we'll, we'll get to this transition uh, to, to Hollywood in a second. But I think another thing that people – should understand about Bob Wills and that's important to kind of our social economic study of this music and its evolution is, is Wills really created in the late thirties, a regional empire where he had a radio show in Tulsa, a nice bus for the band, 
a loyal group of musicians who were just excellent and cheap. And they traveled, you know, they did their radio show several times a week and were able to hit a wide circuit. If you could drive uh, to Tulsa and back in two days, Bob Wills and Texas Playboys could play there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they, they, they were at their best at dances, which was, um, it was a rarity in that part of the world, especially for white people, for a danceable band to um, be there live and in person and playing a musical vocabulary that you understood. It, because he would, he would mix in fiddle tunes and hot numbers, and, and that was what you know, all ages would come out to see. You could, you could waltz with your mom or, or you could bop with your sweetheart. You know? it, was, it was a good thing. Yeah, and one one thing, one ingredient in the Will's mix that really separates him from the country musicians to the east and delineates Western music and especially Western swing is the heavy blues influence. I mean, you know, hits like sitting right. on top of the world. Talk about that, like where these songs he got from the blues tradition. Well, sitting on top of the world was a massive, massive, massive seller for the Mississippi Sheiks. Um, who were a Memphis-based black band who did about oh, just under 50% of their live appearances for white audiences. Um, Sam Chapman wrote that song, and um, it, was, it was just everywhere. It was one of those ubiquitous um, hits that uh, in that era that people would hear. Um, Wills, of course, was finely attuned to what was going on in black music. I remember Al, Al Strickland telling me that um, when they were on tour, they would pull into a city, and first thing Bob did was to grab a cab for Darktown, as, as Al put it. And then he would find a place that sold records. There were no record stores in black neighborhoods for the most part, maybe in very large cities. But he would find a guy who had the latest stuff, and he'd go in there, and he'd ask for um, Bessie Smith, and he'd ask for uh, all these other people who were who were popular. Bessie Smith was the one that Al remembered. Um, and then he would buy a whole bunch of records, taking suggestions from the clerk, spend $10 or so you know, on records, and then take them back to the hotel and whip out his little portable Victrola and listen to them. And that was a very important uh, source of his of his inspiration. He had Count Basie records, you know. He, he had uh, Bessie Smith records. He had um, Jimmy Lunsford records. These, these were the things that, that really turned him on. There wasn't anybody working the country field who had anything to show for Bob Wills, but his musicians, they would gather in his room and listen to this stuff and try to parse the... the things that were going on, try, try to get a handle on the uh, way things were structured and so forth. One of my all-time favorite Bob Wills recordings, he very briefly had a huge band with a giant horn section and stuff, and um, he recorded a, uh, a tune called White Hot, uh, which was a um, Benny Goodman hit. And to my ears, I've, I've heard both of them, to my ears, Bob cuts Goodman, he really does on this number. Yeah, and I and I believe there's legendary stories of the Playboys and Count Basie's orchestra. If they were in the same town, they'd meet up after hours and just play all night together. Right, and and in fact, in the '40s, something I would really have liked to have gotten a little deeper about um, Ornette Coleman as an up and coming kid saxophone whiz. And his friends, they, they would jam with the Texas Playboys in Fort Worth. There was an interview in this magazine, The Wire. The idiot interviewer did not go any further. You know, Ornette says, oh, we used to jam with the Texas Playboys. They was beboppers, you know. And, of course, that's a later edition of it. But just the thought, what was going on there? What were these people hearing from each other? You know, yeah. it would have been lovely to ask, ask a follow-up to that, but. No doubt. And, and Coleman's, uh, you know, as much as he's a legend of 
avant-garde American music, you know, basically the father of free jazz, who's also had deep roots, not only R&B, he started out playing with a minstrel show. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so Coleman's roots go all the way back, and it's it makes perfect sense. It's, it's sort of surprising on the surface, but once you know the who, what, when, where of these people, it makes perfect sense that Ornette Coleman and the Playboys would know each other and be swapping licks and, and hanging out and yeah. playing jam sessions, which uh, is one of the things that's so cool about it. I just want to run real quickly through, like, uh, the Bob Wills singles discography, and you can get a feel for where these are from. I mean, the first single they puts out is W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues. I mean, right. talk talk about putting a marker down. Um, yeah. But then, you know, they follow it up with Good Old Oklahoma and and the Osage Stomp, you know, which are fiddle tunes and, and stuff from the southern fiddle tradition that Bob Wills grew up in, then followed up with Sitting on Top of the World, which is jug band music, hokum. Uh, and then I Can't Be Satisfied, which is the big Bill Brunsey number that Muddy Waters is going to be doing in 1948. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's just, and then... Here's wide open over there, I tell you what. Yeah, and I Ain't Got Nobody, uh, which is, uh, you know, a minstrel song uh, Emmett Miller did. goes all the way back to, I believe, Burt Williams from Vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, and so it's, and then and then follow that up with the Spanish two-step, which is a fiddle tune Will's picked up in eastern New Mexico. I mean, it's just, uh, this is the American music melting pot. And, yeah. And I, they're really, I mean, there were tons of people doing amazingly innovative things in the 30s. You talked about Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, Benny Goodman. Uh, but Wills, to my mind, is absolutely at the forefront of innovation and, and mongrelization of the music. I mean, he's really creating right. a magical hybrid vigor. And, uh, but but then, he also was making a lot of enemies. I mean... For one thing, they tried like hell to get onto the uh, Grand Ole Opry, and finally, because they were on Columbia Records, and Columbia Records had a presence in Nashville, and also because they were, you know, making a lot of money for the company, they they got onto the Grand Ole Opry, and then uh, the powers that be at the Opry made Wills' drummer sit behind a curtain, so he couldn't be seen, or, you know, nobody would know there were drums, which enraged Bob so much they never went back. And yeah, it's the classic it's sort of a precursor of the feuds that uh Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings would have with the Nashville establishment. It's right. Right. These stories uh the players change, but the fundamental aspects, you know, East Coast or East Central versus the Southwest is already there. These these punches are being thrown. And and Bob just builds momentum throughout the late 30s and 40s he keeps finding great musicians he starts he builds up his horn section you know at first it's uh, a trumpeter there's a great story about uh his trumpeter i think came on board as a help me like the the guy wasn't even hired as a musician and then right he's he, sort of valet yeah and, and then he comes to bob and is like hey i play trumpet and i'm gonna if i'm gonna work for you i'm gonna be in this band and um I'm blanking on his name, but that, you know, sort of tells, I think it was Everett Stover. Um, that tells you, you know, just the open-mindedness and the improvisation that's going on here. But Bob really kind of wanted, to, he was listening to swing. I mean, his ears were wide open. He's hearing these, you know, Cab Calloway and Chick Webb and Benny Goodman and, and Harry James. And he wants to have a horn band too. And, you know, by the turn of the decade in the 40s, He's created something nobody's ever seen before. You've got a band with a, a rhythm section of piano, drums, bass, like an African-American group, plus fiddles, plus horns. It's a whole new thing. and Plus a steel it, guitar. Yeah, plus a steel guitar and electric Playing guitar. bebop, you know? <laughs> yeah, doing swapping solos, and, and you know nobody had ever heard anything like this. Plus Tommy Duncan and the ability to wrap it all up into a pop song. And like, right, he and, was a crooner. I mean, he he was the equal of, of Bing Crosby in some ways. And uh, you know, they just kill it through the end of the the decade, and then they they come up with a massive hit in the new San Antonio Rose. It was originally an instrumental called the San Antonio Rose, and then lyrics get added to it, and there's quite a story to that. 
Yeah, there was a radio contest um, for somebody to add lyrics to it. And the guy who won, he was just a fan. As far as I know, he was never cut in on publishing or anything else. It was just like, glad to do you a service, sir. And there it was. Now, of course, Jimmy Rogers was much more famous for doing that than uh, Bob Wills was. But th- this became the sort of the theme song of the band, just like Take the A-Train was for Ellington. You know, they, they played it a lot. You know, they played a couple times a night just to let people know, yes, this was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And it's a hit for them, but it really gets ripped wide open when the biggest superstar of the era, Bing Crosby, does a hit cover just weeks after the Playboys version comes out. Right. And yet they were selling to different people. I mean, Crosby was an urban entertainer, and his audience was largely urban. They wouldn't be listening to uh, country music. There was a real difficulty in turning Bob into a nationwide phenomenon because there was this stigma of hillbilliness and also a stigma of westernness, which was, you know, people really did want the Sons of the Pioneers and and Gene Autry. They didn't want this stuff. It was too it was too avant garde for urban sophisticates. It was only the rubes and hillbillies that could hear what uh, Bob Wills was putting down. This is one of those points in the story where world events sort of take over and Bob has gotten about as big as you can get being based in Tulsa, Oklahoma in this period, breaks through nationally with the San Antonio Rose and Bing Crosby's cover of it, and then Japan Bob's bombs Pearl Harbor and half his band volunteers uh, for the army. The other half gets drafted, and Bob has I don't know, to... about half the band volunteering, but Tommy Duncan sure did. Yeah, and if uh, nothing else, that would have put the kibosh on the band right there. Yeah, the the voice of the Playboys, uh, you know, moves off to s- serve Uncle Sam, but Bob keeps it going. He keeps putting new bands together and moves out to California, along with hundreds of thousands of Texans and Okies who are drawn to the sudden explosion of jobs uh, in the war industry. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was based in Sacramento. And uh, the, the the band got really a lot smaller. And as a result, um, he had to have more technically proficient musicians at all times. So it wasn't easy for him to do this. Also, um, he was dropped by Columbia because of the implosion of the um, of the record business, and um, so he had some hard times there. He did uh, he did a bunch of radio transcripts for a uh, company called Sterling, and didn't have a major record deal until after the war. And these are the famous Tiffany also, transcriptions. You know, Sterling that... and Tiffany. I'm, I'm sorry, Sterling was was Hank Williams. I'm, that's, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're right, Tiffany. Tiffany is who it was. Um, we also are forgetting the huge number of other Western swing bands that, I mean, once once it was sort of a done deal that Western swing existed, loads of other bands, including, you know, Bob's brother, um, came on the scene. And, and um, a lot of them had interesting uh, innovations, like, uh, for instance, Adolf Hoffner, uh, was a uh, a Czech musician from Central Texas, and his band played not only Western swing but Czech numbers and, and Czech dance forms, polkas and and other things like that. Um, and, and so they they made a lot of money without really leaving home too badly. They were based in San Antonio, and there was this whole circuit of dance halls, uh, especially. Um, uh, tied to Catholic churches around LaGrange um, where they could work every week and, and they probably had a radio show, but there were, there were so many other um, Ted Daffin and his, and his, uh, what were they called? I forget, but um, let's see who else I've got down here. Smokey uh, Wood and the Wood Chips, Hank Penny and the Radio Cowboys, Cliff Bruner, you know, all these people, and they all had, 
totally different approaches to yeah to western swing yeah and some and, of them emphasize vocalists some of them emphasize guitars some of them emphasize uh fiddles it was it was really a free-for-all and and there's two in particular i want to mention one was al dexter who's sort of borderline western swing but his massive hit pistol pack and mama i mean that becomes one of the big pop hits of the world right. war ii period and is definitely western music if not exactly western swing mm-hmm. well it was also picked up a lot of these bands had very little writing talent and so they they picked up other people's material and and made it into their own approach so I've I've certainly heard some swing versions of Pistol Pack and Mama that were yeah. not like the more Foursquare version that became a hit. And then, of course, there's the uh, infamous Spade Cooley, who has a massive hit with Shame on You and is, is competing toe-to-toe with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in these packed California ballrooms. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and then he, he actually got to where he had a uh, television program and when I first discovered Western Swing, a lot of my friends who grew up in Southern California went, ugh, Western Swing, yeah, Spade Cooley, yeah, because they'd seen this thing. And, you know, he, he had women in ball gowns singing harmony. He had a harp in his band, and he played a lot of crap uh, in between the swing to keep his, you know, to fill out his hour or whatever it was the program was. And he actually wasn't all that good a musician. He didn't. He didn't have near the firepower that Wills had in his band in terms of instrumentalists. No, and but then of it, course he, uh, yeah, infamously he, he killed his wife, and and yeah. that was at that <laughs> stomps his wife to death in front of his daughter in a drunken fury. Uh, but you can boil Sped Cooley's discography down to a couple of discs of pretty hot Western swing, and so it, it's I wouldn't overlook him completely. But yeah, your point. Oh about, no, he was very important because he he kept the style going on television back when music on television was a total novelty. And, and another factor, you know, Bob Wills is doing cowboy movies around this time. And I, I think you're wrong about him being dropped by Columbia. He, he, he's on Columbia all through the war period and then jumps to MGM, uh, in 47. And, and it is probably an ill-advised move, but in the forties, he's, uh, sort of seizing the patriotic war song market, which, you know, in world war one, Obviously, we had you know George Cohen's over there is the the massive song you know one of the biggest Broadway songwriters of the age writes the biggest jingoistic nationalistic anthem of the war. But in World <laughs> War II, people like Cole Porter, or uh, you know, are too cool to write uh, you know straight up patriotic songs. But Bob Wills comes through with stuff like Smoke on the Water. Stars and Stripes on Iwo Jima, I mean, White Cross on Okinawa, that are all massive hits uh, and mm. huge with the soldiers and, and, the, and the migrants who have come you know, to California and Chicago and all left the South in droves to go work in the war machine and the factories. But I don't think they were, you say they were huge. I think they were probably huge in terms of broadcast, but there were very few records being made during that era. Yes, and there, there there was also you know musician union stuff going on, but there was a shellac shortage, and and that wasn't going to be uh, fixed until after the war when polyvinyl chloride was made available. Yeah, and that's that's an important point. A number one hit in 1944, 1945 sold a fraction of the records that a number one hit in 1940 or 1946 would sell. Right. So you needed to emphasize this new material on your live dates. Of which, uh, you know, Wills had scads. Um, right. But then, then, you know, as with everybody, there's a decline and fall. And Wills, Wills is an interesting person because his personal failings were probably the greatest during his most successful musical period. You know, in the late 30s, I think he was married four times to three different women in a three-year period. Uh, he was very much um, sort of like Ulysses S. Grant, where he wasn't a heavy drinker, but he could not handle alcohol at all. And if he touched a drop, 
it's going to trigger a bender. So he would frequently miss gigs, uh, fall off the stage, things like that. And, and, you know, through the 30s and 40s, he's got enough of a machine and support system that they can cover for him when he does that. But by the late 40s into the 50s, uh, it's happening over and over again. And, and know, he also didn't have a vocalist. Yeah, and Tommy Duncan comes back uh, after the war. They have some big hits for MGM, Bubbles in My Beer, uh, being the biggest. But then he and Duncan, I think he fired. Duncan. Duncan had always told him, you're going to have to fire me, Bob. And eventually Tommy, if I have the story right, uh, Tommy confronted him about missing gigs and being drunk, and Bob fired him. And this time yeah. Tommy actually left. Well, he, he knew that if he didn't have to deal with a obstreperous band leader, you know, it would be easier for him. Leon McCall did the same thing. He established a career playing and singing uh, while sitting down at the steel guitar. And he also was one of the few people from that era who welcomed the pedal steel. Uh, that would be later in the 50s. Um, so he, he was able to keep going. Yeah. And and I want to go back to, to Adolf Hoffner because I have a sort of thesis I want to run past you that mm -hmm. Hoffner obviously comes from the uh, Czech polka tradition which is a very close cousin to the texan german polka tradition those two cultures both right. uh, had a lot of migrants to texas they'll tell you they're very different but for outsiders looking on they're very similar you know uh, well the, you know the the czechs the czechs all came from the the german i don't want you know i don't want to bring up the sudetenland but there was a part of western czechoslovakia that was very heavily uh, German, and that that's where the, the uh, majority of the migrants to Texas came from, and and so that's that's where the polka comes in. Yeah, and and I think that one of the reasons, like if you listen to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys versus Benny Goodman or Chick Webb, uh, definitely Count Basie, even Cab Calloway, the beat is heavier in the Playboys. They really beat it over. It's it's just straight up louder. They do a lot of two four times, so it's one two one two instead of the four four time. Although they do four four time as well. But I like. I'm very curious. I'd like to know if some of that emphasis on those big beats didn't come from Wills's exposure to the German Texas polka tradition. Oh yeah, he, he, the the bass is. I mean, the bass is a very important thing, and the the it, we don't get to hear it much because it was hard to record. Um, even during the early era of electrical recording, you know, the, the bass is big, but it, it has a tendency to go soft. So you're not hearing all that you could be hearing. And uh, live, I think it was very much emphasized. And, you know, it's, come on, it's this thing that Barry Gordy discovered, you know, that you hit the tambourine so white people can dance to it. Exactly. And, and, and Will's uh, and the Playboy's, Definitely, and Milton Brown and the musical brownies as well. Definitely, just hit you over the head with, with the offbeat, so you can't miss it. And then, mm -hmm. um, one other thing I want to hit we we didn't touch on was the 1944 dancing tax, and that really hurt uh, Wills and the swing bands. Anything to say I don't about know anything that? about that? Was this a, a national thing? Because I remember when I was going to college, there was a big sign above the jukebox in the bar where we all hung out that said "No dancing," because they didn't have a dance license, which was a state-issued thing. There's a cabaret tax imposed. Uh, it's a federal tax um, imposed on nightclubs in 44. And there was uh, suddenly a big distinction between a dance hall and a dance club and whether people could dance or not. And that really hurt the swing bands as they were coming out of the war. I mean, we've talked about this before. You know, There are multiple factors that killed the swing bands, one of which is salaries went up after the war, and suddenly, you know, in the 30s, it was dirt cheap to put together a band of 20 or 30 musicians. In the 40s, after the war, it becomes very expensive. Plus, there's a dance tax, so dance halls have to pay a big tax uh, because they've got dancers, and this was a federal tax. Um, and some people argue this was a, one of the reasons bebop emerged, because it was sit-down music for clubs. Um you know, um, Max Roach didn't agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we talked about that 
before, but you know, so the this this Vantax is definitely a factor along with uh, suddenly, you know, it's very competitive to pay for musicians. Plus, amplification means you don't need a 20-piece orchestra to be heard in a dance hall. People right. like Louis Jordan are doing it with a five, six, seven-piece band. Um, and then and that was the Temple that was also coming out of Los Angeles. Yeah, and the and, Central Avenue sound. Exactly, and and you know, Wills and company are there. And another another thing that hurts Wills is he's never able to reestablish. Uh, a home base the way he had in Tulsa. He tries in California, then he comes back and tries again in Dallas. He keeps being pulled away by these lucrative national tours, but that prevents him from creating a regular stomping ground where he's got a market that expects the Playboys on Tuesday and a market that expects them on Wednesday. And so when he's no longer invited on these lucrative national tours, he no longer has the base and some bad investments and you know, voila. <laughs> well, also, the music was changing. Um, electric instruments on the West Coast started moving to the fore, and um, you had people like Ernest Tubb, who was finally allowed to play his full electric band um, and became a, a real big hit maker in the early 50s. Um, you also had people like Hank Penny, who was... Um, working in the, the um, film studios, but also had an electric Western swing band. And the most successful of them, of course, was Hank Thompson, who was out of uh, Wills's old territory of Oklahoma, moved to Los Angeles, got a contract right away with Capitol Records, which was a startup that was emphasizing modern country. And um, he became really, really successful with like a six-piece band, but they were all electric. And I think that sort of offended Bob's sensibilities because he was a fiddle player. He was, uh, he was playing at a non-electric instrument, an instrument that couldn't really be electrified successfully at that point in technology. So he was getting left behind by history. And yeah. really, there's nothing you can do about that except change. I don't want to be the man to ask Bob Wills to change. <laughs> Definitely not. And 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 Thompson's uh, sort of spearheading a movement on the West Coast, along with Merle Travis, uh, Tennessee Yarding Ford, and others. That that the hillbilly boogie movement that they're they're hearing what the right. Delmore brothers are doing in the East, uh, the boogie fad, you know, that exploded from spirituals to swing, hits the country market a couple years later, and. You know, Thompson is a big factor there. But the one last thing I want to hit is the most direct descendant, the most direct connection of Bob Wills to rock and roll is Bill Haley, who starts out as a Western Swing band leader. The Saddlemen. And here's a Western Swing band in Pennsylvania, which shows that this idea has actually spread nationwide, although not terribly successfully. Um, yeah. But Haley was between his radio show, he was a disc jockey, you know, and between that and the Western swing thing and his idea that some of the modern rhythm and blues stuff, Big Joe Turner's work, for instance, could be successfully translated into a sort of Western swing context and then accidentally having that come out sounding like rock and roll. That is the, the hinge point there. And it's the point where Bob Wills eventually becomes totally irrelevant to what's happening. Yeah, he, he, he's passed on uh, his gifts and, and the torch has been picked up by others. But, you know, uh, even Nashville had to acknowledge and eventually put him in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, Bob Wills is just straight up a titan of American music. Mm -hmm. And one who was very little known until a revival in the early 70s. Uh, brought him again to the uh, attention of a of a rock and roll audience. Yeah, and people um, like Asleep at the Wheel, Ray Benson, definitely, uh, and of course Waylon Jennings. Commander uh, song Cody. Bob, yeah, Commander Cody, and and Waylon Jennings' big hit with Bob Wills is still the king. Yeah, and, and um, uh, Merle Haggard also doing a tribute album. You know, sort of rediscovering the, his own roots in California country. Uh, as that uh, as it applied to Bob Wills, it's a real interesting thing, and I, I'm glad that he was revived and that he was given the honors while he was still alive, although not really all that conscious a lot of that time. 
Yeah, but, he, uh, yeah, he 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 really does need to be mentioned in the same breath as Duke Ellington, I think, in, in terms of the artistic advancement of American popular music. Yeah, absolutely. And he never wrote any of the kind of, you know, art pieces that, that Duke Ellington did. Right. But but his blend of American musics and just this is a discography you can just spend months in happily dancing and singing in you know, there are very few clunkers in the Bob Wills vintage discography from like 1935 to 1950. I mean, that there's just there's gold up in them in their hills. Uh, you bet, you bet. <laughs> so, well, cool, Ed. This has been fun as always, and we'll have you back on to hit more topics. Looking forward to getting to part two of the history of rock and roll '63 to wherever you choose to draw the line, uh, and we'll have you back <laughs> on soon. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with Dr. Cam Cobb to finish the tragic story of Moby Grape. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.